0: Welcome to episode 482 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And we're about to express views that do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, or our pets. Joining me for the news roundup, it's going to be a good discussion. Paul Rosenzweig, founder of Red Branch Consulting, formerly with the Department of Homeland Security. And crowd favorite, Nick Weaver is here, researcher at the International... Computer Science Institute, chief mad scientist at Scary Technologies, and a temporary lecturer at UC Davis. On the job market, if you want an entertaining policy and technology professor, he's your man. Get out there and hire him. We're going to run an auction for his services, (laughs) uh, Nick. uh... (laughs) And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Well, I think the big story is we're finally starting to get some serious 702 proposals kicking around. And in particular, last week, we saw the House Intelligence Committee kick off the serious bidding with a a set of proposals that I thought were pretty serious in the sense that they are both responsive to the objections people have to how the FBI has been running 702 and yet don't cripple 702 or intelligence generally. Yeah. So, Paul, uh, can you bring us up to speed on what the Intelligence Committee is proposing? Sure. As you said, Stuart, it's
1: actually the sort of proposal that in a normal environment would be a slam dunk uh, winner. It is responsive to the prior history of activity at the FBI, which to be fair and candid, has had challenges. I guess that's yep. a fair way of putting it. Comporting itself with the limitations and and yet doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The bill would intend to continue to allow the use of FISA information even... Let me back up. The main issue that divides lots of people is that intelligence information collected pursuant to FISA... Based upon a legitimate foreign intelligence warrant, is subsumed inside a database that can otherwise be accessed by other investigative agencies, including the FBI. And this is the normal practice in surveillance law and in, frankly, in search law. You know, collect for one purpose, use however you reasonably wish to within the bounds of your otherwise lawful authorities. It would be odd indeed, and and the genesis of the problems back in 9-11, to say that we'll we'll have intelligence information that we collect over here, but we won't allow it to be used for any non-intelligence-related purpose. That's the classic wall. The problem has been that over the last 10 or so years, the FBI has been rather profligate in pinging that database for all sorts of reasons, including pinging it for information relating to American nationals. Now, most of the reasons they ping it are ones that many of us would find suitable to find an American's potential connections to a foreign terrorist organization, for example. But others of them are potentially
0: of less, well, less high significance. Yeah. They, some of them sound bad and some of them sound trivial. Right.
1: And, you know, I, fair enough. I suppose if, from the FBI's perspective, if I have a tool and I don't use it, you shame right. on
0: me. Well, and I I do think, you know, look, 98, 99 percent of the searches come back. There's nothing in the database about this person. And that which is what you exactly. want. Exactly. Right? And these are searches mostly on the off chance, better safe than sorry searches to say, well, if this person was in touch with a foreign intelligence target outside the United States, it sure would be bad if we missed it. Those are the queries that are getting treated as spying on Americans and have produced this firestorm of hostility to the FBI.
2: One thing that I think is important to remember and why this disturbs a lot of people is the data is collected pursuant to a FISA court order but not a probable cause search warrant. Instead, it's a FISA review over the program that says the intelligence agency can say target on this person and get that data from the U.S. Now, in some ways, I view that as the NSA paperwork reduction act portion of 702 because in all the reviews, there doesn't seem to be any indication that any of that collection couldn't have been done with a full FISA warrant. It's just a full FISA warrant is 70 pages of paperwork per target. Right.
0: And we do about 300 a year, and uh, there are hundreds of thousands of targets. So we would end up just not doing it and missing things, and we'd be sorry.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's more than just paperwork reduction, Nick. Administrative burdens are real things. I mean, to be fair, though, as Stewart says, much of what the what the FBI has been doing is kind of belt and suspenders, or if you want to characterize it with a with the opposite administrative view, cover your ass. And so, the seven hundred two proposal from the hipsey, which is is notably bipartisan, would try and preserve the things that are useful, like allowing the FBI and the intelligence community to ping this information to track Mexican drug cartel burner phones, to preserve the ability to query about people who are applying for immigration or asylum, while at the same time, you know, reducing substantially the number of FBI personnel who can authorize U.S. person queries, some say by as much as 90 percent, and requiring that warrant that we were just talking about, the probable cause warrant, but only in instances in which the query is directly related to evidence of a
0: domestic crime. And those searches, those queries have been pretty rare.
1: They are few and far between, but they would certainly put Americans whose data was in the FISA database in no worse position than if a warrant had been required for the collection of that with respect to their domestic criminal act, alleged domestic criminal activity in the first instance say, through a Title III wiretap or something like that. Um, All in all, from my perspective, reasonably responsive to the persistent inability of the FBI to get its act together and not destructive of the other uses that are legitimate uses. Naturally, this has therefore engendered massive anguish from the privacy community. And part of that is their own historical biases. Part of it, I think, is that they think that this is their time, that 702, which is a response to 9-11, has been around for 20-plus years. They've been concerned about it, disliked it for 20-plus years. And the political environment has finally changed in their judgment, in their hope, so that it's not just Ron Wyden and liberal anti-government pro-privacy activists, but now also Marjorie Taylor Greene and Mike Lee, who are conservative government surveillance skeptics. And they think that they finally found a a holy grail that will let them severely restrict and or kill the program. And the hill that they've chosen to fight on is this 702 warrant, which I should add also divided the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board in the exact same kind of Political
0: valence, three to two. Yeah, their approach this time is to say, oh, we love 702, we should reauthorize 702 and then we should drown it in paperwork and make it impossible to right. actually use. But when it fails, we won't take the blame. It's cynical and I think uh, actually unlikely to, to succeed. I, I don't see a lot of people besides Mike Lee and MTG on this and my sense is that the bill that's been put out by that side of the debate is such a kitchen sink proposal that you kind of have to say what they're trying to do is create a goalpost that is so far away that people feel that they have to deliver some real substantive concessions in order to look like they are compromising. But I think it may, it has taken them out of the debate, is my hope at least. Um, we'll see. I am
1: less sanguine. Stewart, in part because the this is an easy win for the speaker to give the
0: Freedom Caucus. Oh, I don't know. I think if he gives this to the Freedom Caucus, then it will be the Freedom Caucus's bill. It will be the Republicans' bill. And every terrorist attack over the next 20 years will be on them. The New York Times will cover it as, oh, the Republicans did this to us, even if there are more Democratic votes for it than Republicans. So I'm, I think he's smart enough to avoid that. We'll see. I don't think so.
1: As you know, I always say I do policy, not politics. But, but I think that the political anger at the FBI is so on the right. Justified yep. or not, let's leave that just as descriptive matter is so great that, that they want to neuter it in any way possible. And, you know,
0: they're not going to win on the budget. Oh, well, they can send them to the Greenville. Nick. <laughs>
2: I uh, am in Paul's camp that never underestimate the damage that can be done by the slavering jackal party.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, we we still have two bills to come. Senate Intelligence, which I suspect is going to be another responsible adults in the room. We need to reform, but not to kill this program uh, bill. And then we're all holding our breaths for... House Judiciary, where Jim Jordan has gone back to build a career that is not as Speaker of the House. And exactly how close he will come to Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, and Mike Lee is the question of the hour. And so we'll see. I think if he comes out with something that is very aggressive and threatens to kill the program, it will be a a pretty ugly fight. All right, Jordan. Jordan. President Xi came to San Francisco and he came away, or maybe we came away, I'll ask you, with an AI dialogue, which was not, you know, that wasn't on my bingo card. So what exactly did the U.S. and China agree to do about AI?
3: I wanna take a step back because I think we've seen a really interesting arc with regards to China's like outlook and policy towards AI, particularly in the international context over the past nine months. Basically the the sort of policy response Last year, you know, in the wake of, of, of ChatGPT in particular has been sort of a bit of a freakout, and uh, a lot of regulatory controls starting to be put in place with like companies having to register their models and get approval and, you know, sort of like 95% confidence intervals, of not saying, you know, politically problematic stuff. But on the international side, we've seen China interestingly be kind of like engaged and excited to, I wouldn't say play ball, but at least, you know, show up first to the AI summit in uh, London and now uh, with Apex. So about a week before the AI summit, you saw China release like a global strategy for artificial intelligence, which was kind of like anodyne. And then they signed up to the also like relatively anodyne AI communique that came out of, of London saying like, we think AI is a problem and we want to make sure it it does right for humanity. And most recently, a few days ago, she and friends agreed to a sort of dialogue around uh, between the US directly around artificial intelligence. Now, what does this actually mean? My guess is not all that much. I think this artificial intelligence like lots of other topics she sees uh with respect to the bilateral relationship as like a chit that they can give or take away based on how nice they want to be perceived as as being. Okay,
0: so it's basically it's the tech version of, of the pandas.
3: If China wants to communicate in a crisis, they'll communicate in a crisis. But beyond that, I don't think that they perceive any real upside um, when it comes to, you know, what they could potentially get from this back and forth of the dialogue. So
0: that was one of the more embarrassing episodes in American diplomacy with members of DOD over and over just begging to talk to the Chinese in a crisis as though we needed it and they didn't. That was weird.
3: Yeah, the, the sort of charitable interpretation is that the G7 countries were worried Uh, are worried and want to see the U.S. as the sort of responsible party trying to sort of like create communication and uh, potentially diffuse this type of stuff. So insofar as these like continuous outreaches on the American side towards the Chinese to talk about stuff like sort of military escalation are part of what the Biden administration thinks it needs to do in order to sort of shore up the broader Global Alliance Network, I'm all for it. To trade anything off of substance in order to you know have like really boring teams meetings seems to be not perhaps the best use of American political capital.
0: So what do you think about this AI deal? Did we trade something away? No,
3: it was an agreement to talk, which is basically interesting, I don't think.
0: Doesn't that make sense from China's point of view? They're not ahead in AI. They know they're not ahead. So being in the room, being able to ask questions about other people's AI implementations is probably an advantage uh, because they know that they're not likely to say anything that's going to teach anybody in the West this year about AI breakthroughs.
3: Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine that there's going to be a ton of like, you know, cross learning going on with this and the sort of the type of, you know, AI safety related research that's going to be shared probably would have been shared anyways in in open source as a lot of these companies are very much committed to making sure that whoever is developing models are developing it safely so i don't necessarily see a ton of room to run for any of these government, you know, government sponsored dialogues, except when it comes to the sharper end of the stuff when uh, around like compute controls or export controls for algorithms or what have you, that China obviously is not going to be a party to. I mean, interestingly, in the London summit, there was like one day that the Chinese got to join and then a second day that the Chinese didn't, um, (laughs) which is probably how a lot of this is going to play out over the coming
0: years. And the topics that we agreed to talk to the Chinese about bilaterally, it makes some sense to be talking about nuclear command and control drones was on that list. I wasn't sure I understood
2: why. I think it's because there's a realization that autonomy in nuclear command and control is stupid. You don't want it right? because your decision cycles can be slower and our best. Your nuclear safety goes way up if you go, okay, we don't do launch on warning. We'll just wipe you out with our ballistic subs. That makes perfect sense. But on the drone front, I think it's that The small drone slaughterbot model has gotten people's imagination, and I don't think there's a full understanding yet of just how inevitable those developments are. We're starting to see a lot in Ukraine going towards terminal autonomy, full autonomy, and there's a big push in the DOD right now with the replicator program to try to do that domestically. China is undoubtedly doing that. They've got better manufacturing for that side of stuff.
0: Maybe they don't have better autonomy for a swarm, and that that's what's worrying them, that the AI will allow the U.S. to take their hardware advantage and turn it into a software and military advantage.
2: Swarming, I think, is overrated. The problem is swarming requires communication. What really is the kicker is local autonomy. And that okay. doesn't take that much compute. That, okay. You've demonstrated that with some stuff you've developed. Yeah.
0: Okay. So maybe this was, she really took Biden aside and said, you really got to bring that Nick Weaver guy under control.
2: Well, I think both of them, China's viewpoint is, we don't want this happening in Taiwan because right a a autonomous slaughterbot style defense for taiwan would be cheap it would not allow taiwan to go on the offensive against the prc but it would ensure that the prc could never successfully invade
0: yeah yep that's quite possible cuz cuz they're going to be on the open sea and the drones are going to be looking for them so yeah that 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 could turn out to be an important defensive weapon All right. Well, we talked a lot about AI, but we've skipped the most important story about AI, which is the defenestrations that happened at OpenAI over the weekend and have ended with a a substantial change in leadership for both OpenAI and really probably Microsoft's AI program. Paul, what happened?
1: Well, yeah, I think defenestration is a great word. You know, I always think of the defenestration of Prague and and all the Russian oligarchs who are suffering from uh, falling out of window diseases in the past few years. Happily, Sam Altman wasn't actually thrown out a window, so he still lives. But he was metaphorically thrown out of the open AI windows. Sam Altman, as most of the listeners, I'm sure, know, was the head of OpenAI and its uh, front face. He was the guy who was going to all the meetings, testifying for the Congress, calling for regulation, traveling to APEC meetings. He was he was a Silicon Valley wonder boy. And he got canned. He got canned by the board. The board says that it was for lack of communication. Some of the board have said that they now sort of regret having canned him. The president and CEO, Boardman, also left immediately thereafter. It was so bad for OpenAI that there was talk within 48 hours of bringing both back on. But instead, Oldman has gone to Microsoft. So I think the, the interesting question, which is sort of most important, is what's actually behind all of this? And obviously, nobody's really talking. So a lot of this is speculation, but it seems pretty fair speculation to say, that the move fast and break things crowd lost and the let's not destroy the world crowd won at open AI, which is to say that the new leadership there is comparatively more conservative with a small c about development. The new uh, interim CEO, a guy named Escher, has said we were at a 10 and we don't need to clock it down to zero, but we should be going at two or three, I think he said in terms of pace. Meanwhile, the move fast and break things people, like Altman, have moved over to Microsoft, which has a whole you know 30-year history of moving fast and breaking people's business model. It does, but on the other hand, they're kind of this big behemoth. I'm not sure how well they're going to accommodate that much move fast and break things kind of stuff. And it also is interesting because, of course, Microsoft owns 49% of open AI. So- Are they now going to compete with
0: themselves? Don't you think this works out perfectly for Microsoft? They will continue on with OpenAI doing all the things that OpenAI wants to do, and they will probably bring over everybody who's unhappy with the leadership, and that's going to be a substantial number of them, to supplement what they already have. Altman will be the voice of reasonable AI uh, regulation. And we'll also be able to put together a team that, if they think that the open AI is going too slow, can just speed it up. So do you think open AI will now become genuinely open? No. No, Because it hasn't really No, I think they're, they're still afraid of what comes out of openness. But I do think, you know, their ability to be a break on AI development is severely harmed.
2: There's a couple other important little details in the story. The first of all is OpenAI's corporate structure is best described as Rube Goldberg. There's an overarching nonprofit of which the board is the one that defenestrated Sam. Right. Below that, there is a for-profit entity that has the nonprofit as the lead partner and controlling interest. But not the majority ownership stake, but does have the clause that the nonprofit can override the for-profit, and the for-profit can make no money at all. So this is why a board of uh, basically Skynet is going to destroy us. All type AI types, we're able to evict them. The other thing is, is Microsoft's much-touted $13 billion investment in open AI was not $13 billion. It was like $1 billion and then a huge amount of credit for Microsoft Azure.
0: Right. So hey, that's a pretty sweet deal for Microsoft. Um, yeah. They can continue to provide that, and they'll make money from the way they learn that training occurs on that in that regard.
2: And critically, what has happened now is basically to my mind, is a cult war between the Skynet is going to destroy us all cultists and the let's build the torment nexus, as seen in the science fiction story, don't build the torment nexus folks. And the torment nexus folks are just moving to Microsoft in mass. And so Microsoft did an aqua hire of OpenAI. And really, OpenAI doesn't have secret sauce. It has a large data set, a huge Azure training budget, and some good people and a willingness to spend lots of money in third world nations to disguise human labor to train their system better. Microsoft can do all of those.
1: So I'll make a prediction, yep. Stuart. This whole episode will substantially increase
0: the likelihood of
1: some form of regulation in the, in the
0: next year. That's probably right, because people will say we can't rely on these people to regulate themselves. Yeah,
1: exactly. It, it does highlight the cultural war that Nick is is talking about, and it makes politicians and regulators who are not so familiar with what's happening uh, more cognizant of the risks and thus more likely to preemptively and probably erroneously, given how well government doesn't function in understanding
2: new technology, reach out. That's my guess. Additionally, the other reason that's likely to happen is Sam Sam Altman basically was a fake Skynet person when he's really a Torment Nexus person, but he's still publicly perceived as the reasonable, let's worry about the security, safety, and... Where that's really good for is building up regulatory moats. That it was very clear in what he was doing is he wanted to use regulation to build up moats to prevent competitors, which is something Microsoft is totally on board with. So that's where we end up. I think
0: that's probably the answer. It means that OpenAI, the company, could slowly deflate as its vital essences are absorbed into Microsoft. Very interesting. Okay, so, Nick, Meta has announced that it's going to allow people to publish ads on the service that say the 2020 election was rigged. Now, I kind of think, well, yeah, it's a little bit late to be saying that. But I guess what their theory is, is there are going to be a whole bunch of people who want to run, especially in uh, primaries, but also in the uh, general, to say, no, no, Trump was right. The election was rigged and they don't want to take them all down because they'll end up paying a heavy price for it. Is that what's going on here?
2: Yeah, but also that this was a change that was done quietly a year ago, that it just hit the Wall Street Journal and other publications, but it turned out to be basically a quiet change that was done in the run-up to the midterms because it really is a bad look to say we won't run political ads if you're lying because, well... Because
0: political ads by definition are lying.
2: (laughs) And really bad look to only be taking down some forms of lies. And so this was the cynical, pragmatic view. And from the point of view of their board, good for them... For the point of view of society, Facebook's already responsible for, what, one genocide or two at this point? Yeah. I don't think Facebook really cares about collateral damage anyway. Yeah, I have a
0: different take on this. I mean, the fact is that if you say you can't claim that past elections were stolen... It's going to hurt a whole bunch of Democrats, too, who still haven't given up on, uh, I don't know, President Al Gore or the gubernatorial election in Georgia. People who lose are often very upset and inclined to believe that the election was stolen. And so you can't really say, I don't want you saying that uh, because you'll end up being the Internet's election nanny. So I My guess is they wanted to say, look, how bad can it be? People can say what they want about the past. The past is past. And so I don't actually think there's a problem with their doing that. What I think it does highlight is the way in which our speech suppression mechanisms are tuned to kind of the moral panic of the moment. And then we wake up afterwards and say, really maybe we didn't need to suppress all that talk about how maybe the Wuhan bio lab was designing this bug or at least was the source of the bug maybe we don't need to insist that everything trump does must be at the behest of the russian government those were all things you you weren't allowed to question the, the narrative a few years ago now people are kind of willing to let the debate go? Probably because it doesn't matter so much. One of the things I want to think a little bit about is whether these moral panics arise <laughs> kind of at moments of convenience for people who want to elect Democrats.
2: I don't think so, because the, the moral panics on both sides are basically exploited by the grifters on both sides.
0: You, you right? may be right. It's just that the grifters have better access to the uh, speech suppression machinery. I don't think they do. All right. Applied materials. U.S. criminal probe. The claim is that they sold their chips to South Korea, which sold them to SMIC in China, and that there's a criminal probe ongoing. Jordan, it seems to me there's got to be a lot of criminal probes if our China restrictions are going to work at all. So it's not a surprise that there's a probe. Maybe there'll be more of a surprise if a serious company like Applied Materials actually gets charged.
3: Yeah, I mean, basically, the the Treasury Department has figured out how to play this game, right? Where over the course of the global war on terror, they realized that if they threatened billion dollar multi-billion dollar even i think at one point fines for organizations that didn't have their weren't crossing their their eyes and dotting their t's when it came to terrorist financing that um you know you could really get folks attention and that hasn't happened yet in the export control context because it hasn't been that big a deal export controls over the sort of history of it and particularly you know after the fall of the soviet union so this is a, a, a new initiative that the that BIS and the Department of Justice have been talking up over the past few uh, months in particular. And, you know, if you can start to make some heads roll for these companies that are still really dependent on China, I think AMAT, it's like 40% of their sales, 44% even last year were, were into China. So they have a lot of incentive to to be playing fast and loose with not not necessarily making 100% sure where their machines are are ending up. So, I mean, I'm all for it. We'll see how much it plays out and what sort of what sort of dirt they have and how far they can they can push this type of stuff, but I think pairing the new regulations with enforcement makes makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah, export controls are harder to enforce in the aggressive way that Treasury enforced boycott uh, restrictions partly because I think Any one customer to a big financial institution is not as important as any one customer to somebody who sells product. And so people are going to be a little more resistant to just saying, oh, if there's any any question, we're cutting you off because you you end up out of business if you do that. Whereas I think with the, uh, the banks, they're never going to end up with so many customers who are on the list. They can't possibly continue to do business. So it may not work as a full strategy. And certainly if you have to go through a criminal probe every time, it's really going to be hard because the people end up with a major defense, plenty of opportunities to question the evidence that you don't see in some of the uh, treasury enforcement rules. So I'm not sure it's going to work as well, but it is inevitable that there's going to be a pretty aggressive criminal enforcement campaign. And we are going to see some people who are criminally charged and some people who are going to enter into plea agreements and pay very large fines.
2: The other thing I think on trying to do policy through these sorts of mechanisms is there's actually sort of two classes of things. Big machines, like the stuff Advanced Materials does, those you can more easily do. And then there's the smaller stuff, the chips themselves, and then you have the problem of if it's available on DigiKey, you can never embargo it because Joe random person can plunk down their credit card and order ten thousand.
0: Yeah. Yep.
2: Yeah. And it, look, to my mind,
0: export controls just raise the price of the export controlled commodity by twenty or thirty percent. And the, the Russians and the Chinese are going to be able to get these things because it's just there's just too many ways for the stuff to leak through. So we can cause pain cause difficulty, we're not going to solve the problem. All right, here's my favorite story of the week. Ransomware games have kind of moved off of trying to lock up people's data and instead are just disclosing it and trying to embarrass them uh, into paying to prevent that. And now they've discovered a new way to cause pain after they've disclosed the data,
2: Nick. So it's hey, you have reporting requirements. We've dumped your data. We're also going to dump dime to the uh, SEC because you didn't fill things out. I think they may have jumped the gun a little bit. I'm not sure if those regulations go into effect until December, but
0: but, but uh, there is a whistleblower site apparently already up, and they went to the whistleblower site to say yeah, uh, hey, these guys are you know failed to disclose
2: our attack, which. Truth be told, is not what they should be doing. What they should instead be doing is forwarding to class action securities lawyers.
0: Which will add to the pain for sure. Yeah, I think if you're the SEC, you might want to think a little bit before you say, oh, we're going to take this complaint from the people who stole the data and use it to punish the company that allowed the data to be stolen and failed to disclose it to us within four days. That might not play so well in the long haul. Okay. Two other stories. One that I was part of, this was in the Washington Post, about a serious flaw in the randomness of uh, the random number of generators that are protecting Bitcoin wallets, mostly Bitcoin wallets, generated before 2016. So it would have to be seven years old. A company that I've given some advice to, Unciphered, is in the business of trying to rescue money that people have forgotten their code for. And one of the ways to do that is you you try a bunch of credentials until you have exhausted all of the possible credentials. If you've got a proper random number generator, that's just not possible. But apparently some of the open source random number generators that were being used in the early days of Bitcoin's rise were not that good people made some understandable mistakes. And so it's possible to guess the passwords or the credentials for several wallets that were created at that time. And those wallets still have a billion dollars or more of Bitcoin in them. What was interesting about this is not that because the security flaws in cryptocurrency are a dime a dozen. But what was interesting is how do you address that problem? How do you solve the problem? problem for the people whose wallets are at risk. And Unciphered had to try to figure out if they just announced that they'd found the the flaw, there was a real risk that the first person who would figure out how to use that flaw to break into people's accounts would get there before the individuals who were at risk had moved their money. And that's still a risk. But what Unciphered had to do was kind of invent the mechanisms for rescuing at-risk Bitcoin wallets kind of on the fly. They're a startup, so they don't have an enormous amount of extra capability. So they've tried to figure out who had generated those wallets and then go to those companies and say, if you can reach your customers, you should warn them now, and then later... In a few weeks, we'll announce to the world that there's a problem so that everybody gets warned, but that will also set off a kind of gold rush on the part of the crypto criminals to steal the money. I haven't seen that the money has been stolen, so it looks as though the warning got out in time for people to take action. Whether they will or not, open question. But it was certainly a fascinating kind of quasi-legal, quasi-policy, quasi-technical problem. And last topic, Paul, there was a really long story in Wired about where Mirai came from and the hackers who pursued it, built it and distributed it and then open sourced it and then regretted it. Scott Shapiro plays a role in it, who is also a participant on the podcast. What's the TLDR? What did you take away from it?
1: Well, I mean, it's a great story. First, I would recommend anybody who's listening to go and find it. It's one of those wonderful pieces of long-form journalism. I came up with two TLDRs. The first is that some of the people who are bad actors on the, net, on the network really are fat kids in basements. Yeah. Uh-huh. They, these were basically three kids, one of whom was overweight.
0: One had ADHD at least, and uh, maybe, maybe was on the spectrum Another had a stutter. So the Mirai botnet was mostly the
1: product of that whole lulls, teen angst kind of zeitgeist that that we sometimes mock. And and it's much less frequent than real threats from nation-state actors. But it was quite interesting that it was real. The other TLDR, I guess, is that to my great surprise redemption is possible. I spent the entire first three quarters of this article hating on these kids and anxiously awaiting to figure out how many effing years in jail they were going to spend for breaking the network. And in the end, they turn themselves around. They form a white hat hacker research group. They work for the FBI for five years. They go straight and they pay restitution. And yeah, in some kind of sense of justice, they are underpunished for the damage that they've done to the network. I mean, I still sort of think that, but I was surprised at myself at how um, un- upset I was at the final result. I wasn't happy. Oh, and then the third thing, the other TLDR, is it's a reminder of how fragile the entire infrastructure of the network oh, really yeah. is. Oh, yeah. Unbelievable. You know, Story about the the takedown of Dyne and the D DNS servers was. But a fraction of the power of the Mirai botnet itself, and so we build a lot of stuff here without a lot of security behind it. That's in Nick's ballpark, not mine. But it
0: was it was a great read and and a good kind of story. You look know, for redemption. Yeah, I thought maybe the most interesting character was the FBI agent who was half Marine, half Boy Scout troop leader, in the, the words of the article. And I think the whole time he treated them with more respect and more friendliness than you would have thought. And it was very, nonetheless, very effective in catching them. But that afterwards, he carried that over and I suspect was the principal advocate for saying these guys can be turned around. We should we should use them as much as possible. And by the time they were done using them, everybody was kind of on their side. Yeah, it's a, it's a good
1: detective story as well. Cyber detective story. Reminded me in that of you know, my very first book, Cliff
0: Stahl's Cuckoo's Egg. Yep. Okay. Good, good read. Uh, well who done. wrote it? I forgot now. Andy Greenberg. I thought it might be. Okay. God, the guy, he just cranks it out. <laughs> okay. Jordan, Paul, Nick, thanks for joining us. For our listeners, a reminder, I said this last week, I'll say it again. I'm trying to figure out what the Cyberlaw podcast should look like after episode 500, since we're on 482. And I'm kind of of the view that it shouldn't look like this entirely. Maybe we should reduce the pace or mix events and content in ways that encourage people to subscribe. I'm not taking ads, but I... I'm kind of interested in the idea of doing sponsor interviews, sort of like the snake oil interviews that Risky Business does. Maybe that would be a way to cover the cost. I'd be interested in the views of listeners. What should we do to keep the uh, podcast going and not to just have it be a kind of constant drumbeat of drain on my energy? I love it, but I also sort of like having my weekends. So send us your thoughts, cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com. This has been episode 482 of the Cyberlaw Podcast.
2: Never underestimate the damage that can be done by the slavering jackal party.